Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. Welcome to another episode of IBBA Insights. I'm your host, Chris Diglio, and today we have an exciting show in store for you because we have an exciting guest with a very exciting topic. might not seem exciting to you, but I promise you it's very controversial today in the world of business, especially the sale of businesses, and controversial only because of the change in the dynamics of the topic. I'd ask you that are listening, how many of you are familiar with working capital, specifically in the sale of a business? And I know a lot of business brokers out there are saying working capital isn't important in the sale of a main street business because you just don't include that. The buyer is going to bring his own money to the table. And if you're a business owner, I've heard you say the assets included in a working capital formula belong to me and they shouldn't be included in the sale of a business. And are the brokers and business owners correct in their assumption? And there's only always one way to find out and that's to ask an industry expert. And I've known today's guest for over 15 years. I served with him on the board of the IBBA and the IBBA Education Committee. I've attended numerous classes that he has held, and I hold him in the highest regard. I even call him on occasion for advice, and he's always been generous and gracious with his time and knowledge. My guest today is Monty Walker, and Monty's a certified public accountant. He's an innovative advisor in the business transfer industry, providing support to small business owners in the areas of business transactions, business structuring and design, business tax planning, and big uh, business exit planning. And due to his background in transition planning and business transfers, he's often referred to by his clients and colleagues as a business transition CPA. Monty also writes and teaches classes for the IBBA, M&A Source, and other organizations across the United States. And he's been responsible for training over tens of thousands of business brokers and M&A advisors. So I'd like at this time to welcome to the show, Monty Walker. Monty, very happy to have you. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate being invited. Now, always, uh, you're always gracious enough to say yes and help out uh, with the IBBA, M&A Source, and you're always giving of your time. And, you know, when I got into business brokerage 25 years ago, working capital, especially in Main Street, wasn't so much of an important topic or didn't come up. But nowadays, the with the deal sizes getting larger and a lot of equity groups buying add-on acquisitions, the higher Main Street type deals, working capital has become a real issue, mainly because business brokers typically don't understand it. And a lot of times the business owners aren't familiar because the broker doesn't educate them on it because they just are not aware of, of what happened. So Monty, we're going to go through a series of questions to kind of touch on this. And I know it's such a hot topic that right now within the IBBA, they have an online uh, live course introduction to working capitals that you're going to be working capital that you're going to be doing coming up. And then they have an in-person uh, working capital course. That's the next step up that's going to be held at the IBBA conference. And then the advanced stages are, are courses over at the M&A source. So there's a transition. So this is a perfect lead in to what we're going to see over the next many months within the IBBA and M&A source. So Monty, I, I would first ask you, why is it important to understand working capital if you're selling a business? Working capital itself is the lifeblood of a business. Any business can make money 
but yet go out of business. That, that, that's a common problem. Notice what I said. Any business can make money, but it can all, any business can also go out of business simply because they run out of money. So working capital is that lifeblood that keeps a business itself going. And understanding working capital is understanding what it takes to operate a company. And it also, understanding working capital is an understanding of what investment has actually occurred into what we all identify as operating assets. And amazingly enough, working capital is viewed, and it should be viewed, as an integral asset, an, an investment that has been made into the operational assets of a company. So it's extremely important to be able to understand that when you're transitioning uh, a business, because if a business is going to transition to a buyer, the buyer wants that business in the condition it is as they are buying it. And if the working capital is stripped out and it is incapable of paying its bills the next day, it must not be a true going concern. So businesses are purchased as going concerns, and sellers need to understand that. They're selling a going concern. So if we're going to understand the importance of working capital, I would say it's important to start with the basics, the definition of working capital. How, how is working capital defined, Monty, and how is it calculated in the context of the sale of a business? It starts out with the accounting concept. And the, the accounting concept that that is there, which most people in the finance world will have been trained on this, it's current assets minus current liabilities that equals working capital. Now, that is not the type of working capital that we deal with when we are transitioning a company. So as we look at it, we call it maybe M&A working capital. The traditional textbook definition is not that. So M&A transaction working capital differs. What we are dealing with often in the M&A world is what is referred to as a cash-free, debt-free transaction. And what that means is cash is not typically included in the transfer, neither is interest-bearing debt. So when we're looking at working capital, we start looking at working capital minus those items. So really what we're doing, we are taking operational assets, less operational liabilities to come up with what we actually look to say is net operational working capital. So the hard definition when we start talking about in the context of, of selling a company it's operational working capital calculated as current assets minus cash less current liabilities minus any form of interest-bearing debt or debt-like items. This results in operational working capital. Well, that cleared it up. We could just end the uh, podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So that leads into a lot of other questions. So let's start from a business broker perspective. You deal with business brokers, a lot of them. What would you say is the biggest misconception a business broker has when it comes to working capital? Most business brokers in their initial training are taught that the seller retains all cash, seller retains all accounts receivable, the seller pays off liabilities, and then ultimately the buyer brings in whatever liquidity is necessary to run the business. So that's just the initial training. And when you enter into representing businesses for sale, you're starting at most, at least most people will, they'll start at a smaller level and move up in size. Well, that training 
for a smaller business is, is sound. Smaller, we call them Main Street companies. And in Main Street companies, it's very common that cash and receivables are retained by the seller and, they, and the seller pays off any form of liability, including things such as accounts payable. And a buyer brings in any liquidity, any working capital specifically. And so that training, though, transitions itself or transcends itself with that broker as they move up in transaction sizes. So all of a sudden, what might work conceptually in a million or under or $750,000 value or under doesn't work when you start talking a million and a half and two million and up in transactions. So when it comes down to the broker, the broker's understanding of how that working capital comes to play and maintaining the value for that company and how that working capital begins to change and what the expectations are with it as the size of the company uh, begins to change. So it, it's just training. I think all people need training, and that's why we're developing additional training courses so people can learn this. And it's so important as a professional to be on top of everything that's going to happen and to educate your clients. You never want to come across as looking foolish or not understanding or not knowing. And so now when the deal size business brokers in the Main Street arena, they get opportunities that are larger in scope. And now all of a sudden this comes up and if ignored by the broker, Monty, and not explained to their seller prior to taking it to market, can this become a problem or I hate to say deal killer later on when you're in the negotiations of uh, or through the due diligence process? It absolutely can. Failing to get this issue addressed, which as we've just now learned, often starts with just a, a failure to understand uh, from a training perspective, most likely is where it comes from, but it's a failure to understand how it applies to the deal. So thus, expectations are not set properly with a seller. So ignoring this issue or just not getting it properly explained, you have a seller of a company with these expectations of what will result to them at the end of the sale process. And let's just get realistic here. Every seller has an objective, and at the end of that objective is to create the most post-tax money in their pocket as possible. They're going to sell their business. They want the most in their pocket that it can possibly happen. If all of a sudden there could be hundreds of thousands of dollars not there because the seller expected it to be because they weren't properly advised, that deal could very well fall apart. So the chances of a deal falling apart, the transaction being killed, yes, it is a deal killer. If that, It's a very good chance that could happen if somebody fails to address this working capital. So working capital is a proactive process. Proactively address this up front, get a seller prepared so that they understand where they will land after it's over, after the transaction's over. If, the, if you try to be reactive and do not address this, you may spend about 12 months trying to sell a company and finding out you just wasted a lot of time. I heard a private equity group representative talk with a business broker one time, and they were talking about the working capital. And I, I was listening. It was an interesting conversation. The broker was saying, it doesn't need to be included. It belongs to the, to the seller, and that's his. And the equity group's representative said, you're looking at it the wrong way. When we take over and purchase a business, we need to be able to run that business as effectively and efficiently as the current owner did. And right now, 
all the things that you're calling working capital that are included in the business are used in the day-to-day operations to make sure the business can function and, and continue without missing a beat. So I would argue that it doesn't belong to the seller. It's a component of what belongs to the company itself and what we're ultimately buying. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, that's a great way to start my response. Yes, I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. Buyers view working capital as an important operating asset. Just pure simple. Buyers view working capital as an important operating asset. When a buyer makes an offer to purchase the company, a buyer expects to receive all the operating assets in the business, which includes an appropriate amount of working capital. The business is a going concern. Every asset that is used operationally to drive that revenue stream is, a, is an asset that should transfer over to a buyer. And operating capital, when we think about this, operating capital that transfers to a buyer should be in an amount sufficient for the business to generate the same amount of cash flow that was used in determining the purchase price. So whatever is being used operationally as an asset to drive that cash flow, then that type of asset base is what a buyer should get. If you take out the assets that are used for operating capital, meaning now all of a sudden there are no receivables as an example, maybe not even any inventories, those things. If those things are stripped out, then a buyer has does not have the capacity to continue operating that next day unless the buyer brings in more investment. So all of a sudden the buyer has paid a purchase price that should that they should get the assets required to drive the cash flow associated with the purchase price. But if working capital is not there, they have paid for the business and they have to bring in another investment on top of that. So they've doubled up on the cost to even buy the company for that portion of it. So it's very important. Buyers need to get the amount of working capital required to uh, drive the cash flow that they paid for. Now, that's a great explanation. I think that clears it up and it adds on to the story I was telling. So thank you. So there are business owners out there listening to this and there are business brokers dealing in businesses of all different sizes. So the question, does size matter? You know, what size deals should brokers and business owners expect that at that point when they reach a certain level that working capital is just going to be a component of the transaction? This is one of those things that you can argue with people all day long because you can tell them an answer, tell somebody an answer on this, and then they'll come back, well, I just did. And it, they'll say, I just did a transaction that's completely different than, or larger than the one you just described, and it didn't include working capital. So I will say this, <laughs> that I know from all the years of, of doing this work that the concept of working capital begins to show itself at around $750,000 of transaction value. I'm not saying that the demands are there, but it begins to show itself. And the reason why is that is the beginning point where people are starting to spend enough money in a deal that they are getting some advisors and they're paying some advisors. And as that move, as that transaction size gets larger, their willingness to bring in expertise to advise them is, is increasing. So, Somewhere around 750,000, the concept begins as we peak over a million, it's absolutely there. And uh, it's commonly now showing up 1.2, 1.5 million. And what is also happening is we have a, a higher degree of expertise from buyers. There are graduates from, especially 
from the master's programs around the country that have been they've been effectively trained in entrepreneurship. They've been trained in things such as working capital analysis. And so you have these you, you have these college graduates who are now effectively moving into entrepreneurship and they understand this and they're bringing concepts into the one, two, three million dollar range that used to probably begin somewhere around 10 million. So this is a very low level of entry now. So everybody that is looking to sell and all their advisors just need to get equipped and be ready. And that way, if the buyer wants to negotiate for it, everybody's ready to address the issue. You can argue it all you want, but the reality is you need to embrace it because it's not just customary, but expected that it will come up and be part of a transaction, especially the larger in size that you get. So it might as well stay ahead of it, be knowledgeable, because then you get to look that much you get to show off that much more to your client when it comes up and you've already prepped them and they're not caught by surprise. So it's always to your benefit as a business broker to stay on top of these things. And if not, if it doesn't come up, then so be it. You didn't lose anything, but know that a certain size deals, especially with like Monty said, the sophistication of the buyers today, it's going to come up. So now we're looking at working capital and we know we're dealing with all sorts of different industries. So Monty, are there any specific industry standards or benchmarks for working capital that need to be considered? Every industry does. There's databases on every industry, and every industry does have uh, standards, I guess, that you could say apply within the in, within the industry. KPI index models. You can look to see what other businesses uh, have required of themselves to operate. But even within an industry that size issue becomes a paramount problem. So smaller businesses just require less in the operating capital. The larger businesses, as you're increasing in size, you are going to require more investment into working capital. It's really simple when you look at this. If you start on day one and you're, you have no customers, you have nothing invested into working capital. The moment you sell a service or a product, and that person doesn't pay you immediately, you now have an investment into working capital. That's called account receivable because that's a part of the mix. That account, that one customer now turns into 10 and it turns into 20 and then they turn into 50 and 100. And so as that's happening, that account receivable base is getting bigger. And because people don't pay in cash up front, most of the time you are possibly going to have to float some of this as the businesses are, are selling to more customers then the working capital base is growing larger and larger. And that's going to be true in industry. Now, when you in any industry, but if you get into manufacturing, you've got to have more investment into raw materials and inventories are very problematic and staffing to be able to build products. So a lot more goes in. You have to have a lot more invested in the working capital. If you simply have a service company, you have none of that. And you're just floating the time it takes to get people paid. So you're working on getting collections from a customer and paying your staff. Lot different between that. So if you have a highly capital intensive industry with inventories, working capital is a bigger issue than those in the service industries. So to piggyback off that comment, Monty, if you have a company and their significant upcoming capital expenditures or investments, how does that affect working capital? Now this is an operational point. It's not so much the M&A or transactional operating capital that we would be addressing unless somebody has failed to invest into new equipment or has failed to invest into more people. There's a lot of things that can happen from, some, from a company that has been undercapitalized. 
But assuming that's not the case, that particular item, these additional capital expenditures, additional investments coming, these are normal rotating problems that happen in a company. And so when you're looking to buy new equipment, transition a manufacturing line, bring in more people, or you've got enhanced activities underway, marketing activities are going to go drive more product out the door, you've got more inventory to purchase, all of those things are going to hit and take money somehow. So there will be an investment that comes into that in terms of the ability to get those expenditures made. But that's a that's a normal operational thing that has to happen. And I'll say this, in selling a company, the buyers, the seller's responsibility is simply to, to make sure that there's enough working capital there to meet the purchase price that was paid. They are not required to make sure that there's enough working capital to meet the objectives of that buyer going forward if the buyer wants to double the size of the company. Sometimes the buyers will try to negotiate for those things, but the buyer, seller's responsibility isn't to do that. Perfect. Thank you for clearing that one up. That's, that was very helpful. Now we look at inventory and accounts receivable. Are there any inventory or accounts receivable issues that could affect the working capital? Absolutely. Inventories get an underwrap. They're underrated. There's a lot of attention that should be placed on inventory. And a lot of accountants will create problems unknowingly when it comes down to inventories. And this, this same thing can happen with accounts receivables. The inventory is something that has got an investment. There has money been put into inventory. And many times there, these things are being written off and they're not showing up on a balance sheet. So it's sometimes difficult and hard to see. The accountants will be trying to make the, everything uh, as good as possible from a tax perspective, and they're getting these write-offs. But then you have all this off-balance sheet inventory. So is that working capital? Absolutely. There's a working capital investment that's happened there. So that becomes an issue. Accounts receivable, if you are failing to collect your receivables in a timely way, that affects your working capital. Now you have less money. And a buyer is going to be a problem with a buyer. They're running into the working capital problems that a seller has created because if a buyer comes in and tries to double up the amount of time for collecting on an account, but the customers have been used to long payment cycles, then the buyer can adversely affect their own revenue stream and get people get their customers upset. But working capital is inclusive of inventory, and it is inclusive of accounts receivable. So the larger those balances get, the greater the level of working capital requirement. So it's best to manage inventories, keep them as low as possible, but yet keep the company operational. And it's good to, and it's best to try to keep accounts receivable collected very timely. Monty, when we're talking about working capital, what time periods are used to determine the correct working capital? Is it trailing 12 months, recent month end? What would you say about that? From an, an M&A, that's why, because we can go in different directions on, on that. So just specifically from a M&A or a business transaction working capital perspective, we are looking at historical typically to try to get our hands around what operating capital requirements may be. So we would look at it certainly at a 12-month period, a business that's been around for a, a, a long time, an established company. 
it's even important to look at trends. So you may look back in time and it may be looking at 36 months worth of data to see, are there any trends that, uh, throughout the year that cause that uh, ups and downs, any cyclical effects, certainly seasonal companies are, come into play there, but we are looking at least in a 12 month, uh, 12 month cycle. So trailing 12 months, it can be that you have to look at three months if a business is in a high growth. So 12 months back, may not be representative of what's happening to that company right now. And a buyer may be actually buying at the upper end of where they're operating right now in a high growth company. So their cat, their working capital is indication is an indication of where they are right then at, at a, at that point in time. But you're typically trailing 12s. We may look at sixes or three month trails dependent upon the growth cycle. And then when you close the transaction, you look at what's there at that monthly point, that end point, and compare that to whatever agreement has been made as to far, as far as what working capital should be there. But at least analyze 12 months from at a minimum. Is, is that, Monty, how they determine the target on the working capital for the transaction? Yes. So a target must be most often is going to be established between a buyer and a seller. And that uh, trailing 12 month is a very common uh, uh, arrangement for taking a look at working capital, but uh, sophisticated buyers, they will look to other issues. They're going to look beyond that 12. So that's why it's important to review beyond that. But setting a target, coming to an agreement on how much should be there, both parties have to look at a time period that seems to be an indication of what should be expected in terms of working capital. And the 12-month trailing is typically a good trail period to look at. Now, when they're reviewing the financials and coming up with a working capital, does it matter or change the working capital in any way if the financials are based on cash or accrual? Cash and accrual are about tax management, uh, certainly about accounting. One, the cash method is you record income when you get paid and you record expenses when a bill is paid. And accrual, you record uh, in, in revenue or income at the point where an invoice is sent to a customer, essentially, and you record expenses or expenditures uh, upon receiving an invoice. There's other components that come into play, but it's not about cash in, cash out like, like the cash basis is. But in either case, if a customer owes money, then they owe money. That's an account receivable. Under accrual, the account receivable will be showing often on the balance sheet. On a cash basis, it may not be showing because cash basis taxpayers are not looking to the accounts receivable details in their daily operation, but it is the same. And I've had this conversation a lot with people. As a matter of fact, that question of is there a difference in working capital between a cash basis and accrual basis taxpayer, the answer is no, there isn't. There just is a difference in the reporting that they're doing and the ease at which you can identify their working capital requirements. The record keeping is different. Outside of that, it is exactly the same. If a company is, has investments in the inventory and if they have people who owe money, whether or not cash or accrual is, is being used for the accounting method, that same amount of money that is invested into those categories is still there. So it's the same under cash or accrual. All right, Monty. So let's now get into the nitty gritty, the, the fun stuff. So we negotiated a deal. It's under contract. They want, they've gone through due diligence. It's going to close. And now they're looking at the working capital at closing. 
And at that point, you know, what happens when it differs from the agreed upon target? What are, what are the common mechanisms for adjusting working capital at the time of closing? Or is it the time of closing even the right time where they're looking at the differences? Or is there a true up? And if there is, when does that typically take place? The working capital issue will, I will say in the word always is a very big statement, but I'm going to use it. Working capital will always have a difference between what was expected and what is actually there. Companies are dynamic. They change every day. And so when a closing happens and that business transitions over from the seller to the buyer, on at that point, whatever has been agreed upon in terms of the amount of working capital that would transfer to that buyer, whatever that agreement is, there will be a difference. So the actual working capital on that date is going to be that difference. And if the working capital that is actually there is higher, the seller should get that additional to retain to them. They should get paid for that. If the amount of working capital that's actually there is lower than what's been agreed, the buyer should somehow get compensated for that. So typically, we'll see an, an adjustment to the purchase price up or down, depending upon whether or not there's excess or deficit working capital. And then and that's a common approach. And then it's, it's also likely that there could be an agreement that if there is excess, maybe the company just writes a distribution out to the seller. And if there's a shortage, the seller may be required to write a check back immediately back in. So the key thing is whatever is agreed upon, either side will get effectively compensated for, their, for the excess or deficit that is happening. And it's even more common and to address this issue in a delay mode. It's very unlikely in the, as the deal gets larger that you can be so precise that you can calculate this stuff on the day a business transaction closes. So there will typically be this period after the closing in which all the accounting processes are done. Collections can be accomplished on accounts receivable. All invoices that could be coming in from vendors, they'll be gathered. Maybe inventories have to be properly accounted those types of things. And that is a tr what we do call a true-up period. And that period can be 90 days, 120. I see some trying to go 180. That's, that is really excessive. But on an average, 90 and 120 is a range in there that we'll see these transactions delay to get these actual final cal calculations done. But as soon as they do that, which is called the true-up period, and, it, and as soon as they have the true-up numbers, there will be a comparison so actually the working capital that was there after the true up compared to what was agreed upon, then there'll be an up or down adjustment in the purchase price based on the excess or the deficit. So we understand on the purchase price, there'll be an adjustment based on the working capital where it finally ends up compared to what the target was. But when someone's looking at a business to take to market, Monty, do they need to consider working capital during the valuation process at all, or is that just something that'll work itself out in negotiations? Now it needs to be. Uh, working capital has a direct impact on value. So if working capital, mm -hmm. if there's an under, uh, if it's undercapitalized, the company's worthless. Notice that I, I didn't say worthless. It is worth less. <laughs> so it's worth less than what it would be with an appropriate level of working capital. So if a if if the value has been set incorrectly, and let's just say the business broker has worked through in their own mind that 
the assumption being that the working capital will be retained by the seller. In other words, working capital was just disregarded. What will happen is the value of that company may very well not be set properly. And now we have buyers showing up who are expecting working capital to be there in their offer. And they, what happens then is they submit offers that may be consistent with a market value that's been priced out on a company. And now we have a seller having to wrestle with offers showing up that the buyers are expecting to get working capital. And that wasn't even included in how they are how they calculated the value. So that's, it was undervalued. That means now they may have to transfer working capital over to somebody, and they should have not had to transfer that in addition to undervaluing. If they'd have valued it properly, working capital would have been a part of the deal. So it can be it will adversely affect the transaction, and when it's not included at the valuation point, and it as we discussed earlier in our in our talk today, it very well could kill the deal. Yeah, and that's the last thing you want to happen. You'd rather kill a deal early than than a week or so before you think you're going to close because people just can't come to the terms on what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And Monty, you know, the, we talked earlier when we first started the program that business brokers sometimes don't feel that working capital, uh, who needs it, it's not important, no one looks at it. But I don't know if that's true because even on SBA loans, lenders, they look at it. it. Lenders have specific requirements related to working capital when financing the, a business purchase, don't they? Yes, the underwriting process will drive a certain amount of working capital lines. So they'll set up a, an additional loan for working capital. And then the buyer can reach into that line uh, to be able to help with the working capital requirements. So it is a, that is a common. It's a debt item. So let's you know, we come back and look at that here. They have had to take on debt to address something that very well should have been a part of the purchase price. So are, is so is the appropriate level of working capital being taken into consideration? Very likely, no. No. When the actual amount of working capital that's required is analyzed, it most often actually will be greater when you really look at the total scope of the requirement than what an SBA lender will put on the table. Now, when you do look at that, that's, a, that's an issue, because think about this. If the objective is to say that a buyer should get the amount of working capital sufficient to drive the same amount of cash flow that they are paying for, then if you're looking to a loan to get the working capital, that means the buyer must not have gotten the operating assets that they're supposed to get. If you're spending several million dollars on a business, it gets no working capital, and they have to go borrow money to get that. That just simply means they're having to infuse additional investment, and they're going, they're, they're going in further into debt to do something that should have been included in the operational assets that are there. Do lenders have requirements? Yes. They will look to see the amount of working capital that's there, and if they see that it's undercapitalized, they will certainly move to try to have a, a working capital line. But there is a limit to how much those lenders can put out there. Key thing, though, is whatever the operational assets are for a business, those operational assets should transfer. And the lenders should not be looked to exclusively as the answer. So anybody who looks at, a, at an SBA loan and says, oh, the SBA, it's an SBA loan, they'll take care of it. That's not how this should be looked at. You should value these companies and sell them based on include, the inclusion of operating capital because the assets required to operate that company should be their period. Think about what we just talked about. 
And let's take it down to even the lower levels of Main Street business brokerage, where maybe there's not a working capital formula tied to the price of the business. But just from working with a buyer, understanding the working capital, let's say he's an, they're an all-cash buyer. They come in and you say, well, the business is $350,000 and they spend $350,000 and no one's talked to them about working capital or money or cash injection into the business day one, what it takes to run that business. I can't tell you how many times throughout the years I've heard the horror stories of a buyer buying a business because they thought it was the greatest thing they ever saw based on the cash flow and the represent, representation of the company put out there by the broker only to find out 30 days into the business, they couldn't afford to keep the business open because they didn't have a sufficient amount of working capital. It's horrible. Oh, I know. I know. And a broker should not solely look to get a transaction closed because they're going to be able to take care of the needs of a seller and they're going to get paid. And they have a responsibility to make sure that the buyer is effectively trained in terms of the knowledge of what it's going to take. And if a broker knows it's going to take X amount of dollars and they can see that somebody's strapping themselves to the very end to try to get in there, they should be explaining those things. Now, I can be challenged on that. I have been challenged on those statements. It's A broker can say it's not my job to make sure somebody is effectively ready to fully manage. If they're big enough to buy, they're big enough to run into whatever problems. But no, we have a greater responsibility in in this industry to do the, to to act and behave to the greater good of the people. And so if somebody is about to walk into a hole and we know it and they are going to submerge themselves and they can't breathe, we got to figure out what to do. And that means explain to them what the working capital requirements are very likely going to be. And if, as you said, if they're going to put $350,000 down on a business and they've taken all the money they possibly can and it's cat and it's a cash uh, upfront, they don't have any working capital lines with a, with a bank. And at that point, it very well could be too late. So they need to figure those things out up front and be prepared. I agree with you 1000%. I've had these discussions and, and I probably get myself in trouble because I'm very passionate about this. I truly believe it's irresponsible on the side of, of a business broker to sit back idly and just watch a buyer walk into that minefield and not advise them of, hey, their working capital requirements. And you'll have the broker says, I don't represent the buyer. I'm not, that's their problem. That, oh, okay. Maybe it's just, you're talking about someone's livelihood. They've worked a lifetime to accumulate a certain amount of money to be able to try to better themselves and better the life they're in. Even in the write-ups that most brokers are doing on businesses today, there's such a big difference now than 25 years ago. Most brokers are putting in the working capital, at least comments to talk about operational aspects of the business and what it takes to run the business and at least making note of that. So I don't think it's as much of a problem today as it was 25 years ago, but boy, it really does get me heated, Monty. It does. I, just do the right thing. If you want to be an advisor, you need to think like an advisor. And that, it's like that weekend athlete. If you really want to be an athlete, you better train like an athlete. And you can't expect to go out and do things that you're not training yourself for. The same thing is true here. As a business broker, being viewed and esteemed as a professional, there comes some responsibility with that. And so you want to be an advisor, you have to think like an advisor. And that means you think about the, the good and the bad that can come from what you do and try to leave a trail of positive and not a trail of destruction. There can be a whole lot of ugly out there that can be turned around. 
just simply by the way you deal with people. And people now use retirement money and other mechanisms to get businesses purchased. And sometimes they're just they're using the last thing, the last bit of dollars they have to try to make a difference in their life. And what a catastrophe it would be that they walked into a hole to lose everything. And all it might have taken is one person to tell them, hey, have you considered the fact you may not have enough money to actually operate this thing? Should you rethink what you're doing? Sometimes, though, the objective of getting paid can override what is most important, and that is take care of the people. And so I pound on this thing a lot. But you're right. It's not the way it is today as it has been in the past. It's a lot more, there's a lot more effort put out by the, by, this, by the profession of business brokers to do the right thing. And most of them overall do think like advisors. They, they act and think like advisors. And that's how you ultimately get elevated to the trusted advisor. And not even just an advisor, someone people can trust. Yeah. And who better business and business brokers are are often doing helping people sell the most important thing that they've ever had. One of the largest transactions they've ever had in their life. And, and many times it's the accountant or the CPA that's that trusted advisor, but the broker ought to be that person. They're helping them do the biggest thing they may have ever done ever. So I, I like the trusted advisor concept. No, I do too. So, Two more questions because we're coming to an end and I want to make sure we get this through. Everyone's always not worried about, okay, what do I receive, but what do I get to keep? Are there any tax implications or considerations related to the working capital in the sale of a business? When inventory is a part of this working capital mix and as well as account receivable as an example. So when you include working capital, if the inventory is being valued at its cost, then most of the time you won't see an immediate tax implication for the sale of the inventory. Now, if inventory has been written off as fast as it's being bought and it hasn't been held on the balance sheet, then there could be an additional tax issue. But for the most part, these are tax neutral issues. This is a very important thing to remember, especially on accounts receivable. If Somebody's on the cash basis, and they've never recognized income from the receivables. They recognize income when they get paid. If working capital is included in in the transaction, then that person is deemed to have collected it, no different than if they collected from a customer. So yes, there will be tax paid when receivables are involved if they are a cash basis taxpayer, but they're paying no more tax than they would had they collected in the normal course. In inventories, it's the same thing. So uh, when you deal with working capital, it will not ultimately drive greater or less tax. It doesn't. There could be tax, but it's not going to be any different than had they addressed those same tax issues, issues in the normal ongoing operation. So working capital itself is meant to be conceptually a tax neutral effect, but uh, some people could pay tax depending on their accounting method. All right. Final question for you, Monty. When looking at the working capital and everything that we just talked about over the last 45 minutes or so, what's your final piece of advice you would give to those involved in the sale of a business, whether it be a broker or the individual selling the business concerning working capital in the transaction? Working capital itself is a lifeblood of a business. Just a fact. Working capital is most often highly misunderstood. So when you're dealing with it, just this 
just our session today, there's so many different facets of it. It's, it's very much so misunderstood. Working capital is typically highly contentious. So dealing with this thing early on is super important. And because it is a highly contentious issue, the parties will tend to avoid it. So when that's a broker dealing with a seller, just as well as a seller not wanting to talk about it with a buyer. It's misunderstood, it, but it's the most important issue in the operation of the company from a liquidity perspective. It's highly contentious. People want to avoid it, but delaying and avoid it, avoiding this stuff creates a lot more challenges respect, with respect to getting a seller or buyer's expectation in order. So here's the key thing. Working capital is a proactive matter. It should be addressed as close to the front end of a business transaction as possible. Do not delay. Do not wait address this issue up front and prepare. Everyone, we've been listening to Monty Walker and he's been so kind to answer all the questions I had for him and, and to share with you his insights on, on this topic. Monty, before you go, I'd like to ask you to please share your contact information, how someone can get in touch with you. If they're involved in a larger transaction, they're struggling with some of these concepts and they need to bring in a special advisor like yourself to assist. I can, as many people, I can be found out on the internet. So I, I can be found at walkeradvisory.com, but uh, directly at my office, our number is 940-322-5086. And feel free, as always, anybody can do this, is shoot me an email. That's uh, at mwalker at walkeradvisory.com. Monty, thank you very much for coming on this episode of IBBA Insights. I greatly appreciate all that you do and all that you continue to do. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. All right. This concludes another episode of IBBA Insights. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Monty Walker. Listen to it again. Listen to it two or three times. We talked fast. We went through a lot of information, but it's so much useful information and important information and knowledge that Monty shared. So take it in, go back, listen to it again, and then you'll get the things that you missed. But like everything, we want to make sure that you're enjoying the IBBA podcast, and we want to make sure you have opportunity to listen to all of the ones that we have out there. So you can do that by going to ibba.org insights, where you can subscribe to the podcast by clicking the Apple, Android, or email icons, and then you'll never have to miss another episode of IBBA Insights. So thanks again for listening to today's episode of IBBA Insights, listening to Monty Walker, hearing all that he had to share with us. And we invite you back to the next episode of IBBA Insights.